Some people love Shakespeare, others not so much. But a Shakespeare adaptation is always a good time. Constellation Theater at 14th and T is featuring a musical called Desperate Measures. It's based off of Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure, but it's set in the Wild West. A gunslinging nun teams up with a sheriff and a saloon dancer to save her brother. Buy tickets now at constellationtheater.org. The show runs through March 17th. Once again, that's constellationtheater.org. Today on CityCast DC, I'm here with CityCast contributor Dan Reed and audio producer Julia Caron to talk about some pretty notable DC renovations. One is an outdoor music venue. The other is at the heart of the U Street Corridor. Plus, since Julia's here, we're going to hype some news about women's soccer. Today is Friday, December 9th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. All right, so for our One of Us segment, Dan is going to tell us about Carter Barron Amphitheater, a place you may or may not have noticed, but which has uh, some pretty significant resonance for him. All right, so for those who don't know, Carter Barron Amphitheater is located in Northwest off of 16th Street up against Rock Creek Park. It was a gift from the federal government to to D.C. and dedicated in 1950 by Harry Truman. It's this really cool like mid-century stage, like set in the side of a hill. And some big names performed there over the past 60 years, Bruce Springsteen, Ella Fitzgerald, Diana Ross. It closed about five years ago because the stage was deemed unsafe, which is a problem because the dressing rooms are located directly below it. We wouldn't want that to cave in. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) All right. So there's news this week, right? That's right. Uh, The National Park Service is working on plans to rehab the entire facility, starting with the stage, which will cost about $2 million. The entire project, they'll get new restrooms and upgraded facilities elsewhere. They're saying it'll cost about $20 million, but the good news is it could reopen as soon as 2026. All right. So what I think is interesting about Carter Barron and, you know, that area more broadly is like a lot of the land of DC, it's uh, National Park Service land. And the weird thing about like the city and the park service, uh, this city particular, but I think all cities, is like the culture of the National Park Service is really focused on like these enormous, beautiful national parks that are about preserving the natural landscape untrammeled. And I, I suspect if you join as like a rookie ranger, your dream is to like ha- have your successful career end by being the head of Yellowstone. Urban parks, on the other hand, are designed not to like just preserve nature, but to give people who live in tight spaces outlets, outlets to play basketball or let their dogs run or look at concerts. And historically, it's not always been like easy relations between park service like uh, properties in DC, like like Meridian Hill Park, Malcolm X Park, and neighbors who want to use them intensely rather than like stay on the path and appreciate the beauty of nature. And uh, concerts in um, in Carter Barron are kind of an example of that. So it's pretty cool to see that being uh, renovated. Yeah. Also, the fact that it's an outdoor space. Like I know when I go to concerts, the outdoor spaces that are available to me, it's like Meriwether Post Pavilion which is in Columbia, Maryland, and is fun, but like it is a trek. You are convincing yourself to drive up the beltway 
and then find parking. And then if it's raining, you're screwed <laughs> and you're and you're stuck in traffic forever or like Wolf Trap out in Vienna, Virginia. Like those are treks and they're not really accessible. And this I could walk to this from my apartment and see someone. So I'm very excited about this. Yeah, Carter Barron has had such a huge you know, role in the culture of DC in the last part of the 20th century. And I think, you know, I think of it alongside other sort of outdoor music venues that are also National Park Service land, like Fort Reno, as places that, you know, locals could go to see acts that had a much bigger footprint. It also, Carter Barron has a, a specific role in the culture of the Reed family. True or false? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. My uh, my uncle, who was a DC cab driver and and lived in Petworth, uh, taught me to parallel park in the parking lot at Carter Baron. That's the other perk. It is the biggest <laughs> parking lot in the area. <laughs> so, are you saying that if it and when it gets fixed, we will have an influx of younger Dan Reed, sixteen and seventeen year olds, trying to learn to parallel park or drive in this parking lot? As far as I know, the parking lot is open now, so I assume it's still <laughs> happening. Um, and I assume that again, for a, a an aspiring park ranger, the notion of uh, of uh, Dan Reed learning to parallel park in his bailiwick is an outrage. No one <laughs> learns to parallel park at Yellowstone, man. <laughs> Do we know anything about the uh, other, anything more about the renovation? I know a big part of it is going to be preserving you know, sort of the mid-century character of the building, you know, of the, like the facility itself. You know, we often talk about mid-century architecture as like buildings, right? But this is an outdoor space that was designed in that style. And because it's historic, you know, part of the emphasis is going to be making sure the structure is sound and that the facilities meet modern needs, like I mentioned the bathrooms earlier, while still keeping the historic design and character of the space. So it's not like Meriwether where you're going to see like a giant mm. like structure around it with extra seating and screens and stuff. But is the idea that this could go back to being like a, a vital place that is drawing like bigger name acts? Oh, yeah. Like who would you want to see there when this reopens? Like I know one thing that is really cool about New York City is that they have Shakespeare in the park. So they'll have a bunch of actors do Shakespeare out in like Central Park. And it's, you know accessible to everyone. It's kind of a good way to like engage with Shakespeare, which I think a lot of people are like mixed on, you know, if they like the plays or not. Uh, but I think like Shakespeare at Carter Baron Amphitheater in DC for as nerdy as it is, I think that could be like a really big draw and could be important for people who like would want to go to the Shakespeare theater, but maybe don't want to go like downtown, downtown. What do you guys think? They actually used to do that. Oh I God. saw a production of Hamlet at Carter Baron probably 15 years ago. It was befitting the late 2000s at Emo Hamlet. He had like Amazing. bangs and like a hoodie Amazing. and stuff. <laughs> uh, personally, I'd love to see Barty Strange at the Carter Baron. You know, he's a local act. He's gotten a lot of national attention and he sounds really good live. And I'd love to hear that outside. Mike, you got any picks? I saw George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars there. And, you know, this was like well after the heyday of the of Parliament and Funkadelic. You know, it was a little disappointing when the mothership pulled up and it turned out to be a bus. Um, um, but although it, it, it parked very nicely. So maybe Dan's <laughs> uncle had, <laughs> had something to do with that. It would be so cool if it could be a place for like, kind of secret concerts. I don't think that gets to happen in real life. Um, like a like a secret disco or like a silent disco where you're just like, you get a text and it's like, meet at Carter Baron Amphitheater at 7 p.m. and you don't know who's performing. Yeah. yeah. It's like a secret place that only only we locals know about because it's sort of hidden in the woods. 
Yeah, I definitely like the idea of having more local acts too, like having like Ari Lennox or Maggie Rogers like play outdoors in D.C., Two very different artists, but I think, like, their sets outdoors, like, underneath Moonlight would be very, very cool and, like, could reverberate throughout the park. Yeah, I – this is my pitch. Ari Lennox, Maggie Rogers, please play at Carter Baron Amphitheater when it reopens and it's refurbished and it's nice. Please. When did Bruce Springsteen play there? The, the past? <laughs> <laughs> I think even by the time I was like old enough to go to concerts, it was like pretty much like nostalgia acts. It mm. was not sort of people on their way up. And it would be really cool if it became a place for people on their way up because that is, you know, more dynamic and exciting. I just don't know if it's good business. You know? <laughs> so Bruce Springsteen played in 1975. So this was Whoa. like, you know, uh, he was not quite a nobody, but he was not yet like the, a somebody. You know, right. The brand new Arbor at Tacoma is built for your most convenient urban living. Whether you want to enjoy the vibrant Tacoma, D.C. community or comfortably retreat into a sleek sanctuary all your own. The kitchens have striking dark navy and white cabinets, and throughout the home, there are wood floors and smart home technology. Some homes even have a private outdoor space. With a quick walk to the metro, you can easily head into downtown or stay close and enjoy the retail that's on-site. Located at 218 Cedar Street Northwest, the Arbor Tacoma offers brand new one- and two-bedroom condos starting in the upper 300,000s. Visit thearborattacoma.com for more information. That's Tacoma with a K. So T-H-E-A-R-B-O-R-A-T-T-A-K-O-M-A dot com. All right, let's do our bigger picture segment. We uh, talk about sort of one little story in the news and why it actually has a lot more resonance than you might think at just glancing at a few inches of news copy. So there was reports this week that the city is reissuing its request for proposals for uh, renovating the Reeves Municipal Center, which is at the big uh, unsightly city office building at the corner of 14th and U Streets. The story of the Reeves Center, for, for people who don't know it, is that it sits at the intersection of 14th and U. Right now, we think of as like the heart of the bustling U Street corridor, but which for years after 1968 was the sort of epicenter of destruction in the disturbances of 1968 and a dead zone of businesses and disinvestment. The uh, arrival of the metro had kind of chewed up U Street and the construction process had further dampened business. And so when then Mayor Marion S. Barry opened a city office building at that intersection, it was sort of a big symbolic moment of like, we are reinvesting in this burned out historically, the heart of like a historic black Washington. And between that and the metro and the broader trends of uh, financialization, it was a success beyond all imagination in that 14th Street has now become an incredibly expensive upscale retail and the, the neighborhood around it, uh, very pricey, very gentrified, very changed, such that now the Reeves Center is this like ugly kind of brutalist office building um, with not a lot of life to it. And it's insufficient. So the city a couple of years ago decided we were going to redo this. And they've got all these really exciting things going on. The NAACP was going to move its headquarters from Baltimore to Washington to 
be at that location. There was talk of, you know, hotel and retail and all this stuff that would kind of knit it together, knit it into the community, retain some of the sort of social justice veneer that had been part of the, you know, original building of that building, but kind of add to the dynamism of that intersection. The the redo of the request for proposals is mostly like for technical reasons and for making the bid more equitable. But I think it's a super interesting moment that the the kind of the building that was supposed to reestablish the neighborhood has now itself become the laggard. Yeah. So do we know what some of these bids look like to transform this building? Like, have we heard from people about like, ah, yes, like we're going to have like shops on this ground level and then upstairs, here's how we're going to renovate it. Do we know what any of those look like? Physically, no. Um, (laughs) In terms of what they would contain, Mm. yes. Uh, So NAACP headquarters, there's one idea that has a hotel involved. There's others that have mixed income housing or what they call affordable housing, which is to say affordable on a a lower income. Um, So this old idea that, well, there's office buildings and there's residential buildings and there's commercial areas and these things must be separate. Uh, they're, they're, it's trying to overcome that and, and mix it all up with the idea that then you will have people strolling around in the day and strolling around at night and so on. And I think actually one of the one of the things that that neighborhood really could use is like, a, you know, a couple more office buildings because, you know, you got office buildings, you get people walking around at lunchtime that helps uh, restaurants and stuff stay open during the day, it gives them some customers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you know, I, I worked on U Street in a in a co-working space about 10 years ago. And that was the weirdest thing is coming out onto U Street at lunchtime and feeling like you were in this like sleepy small town where most of the businesses were closed and there was nowhere to eat for lunch. And then it was only when I was going home at the end of the day that you could feel the street like like liven up, right? And so I totally agree. Like, especially as more people are remote working, like having space to work on U Street would give people more reasons to be there during the day uh, and sort of fill a big hole in the retail and the liveliness of that space. So Dan, you're like an architecture critic. What do you make of the Reeves Center itself right now? Honestly, I don't hate the building, right? It is very much a product of its time. You know, in the 80s, the big move in the city was to have this sort of large super block building to sort of suck all the people inside. And, you know, give them a space that was sort of safe and contained. And that was the concept here. You know, all the big city agencies were in the building. You have this big glass atrium at the center. Um, I don't hate it. I, would, I wouldn't mind a proposal that figured out how to keep some of the architecture of the building intact. You know, I think like the Barbican Center in London, which is this sort of hulking, brutalist thing that is now an extremely trendy, historic place to live and do art and shop and stuff. Uh, my understanding is the proposals involve taking the building down, right? Uh, it's a whole mix. Yeah, which is like, fine, you know, plus a change. But it is, a. I mean, here's the, the sort of wonky uh, question too. The last 20 years, by by most estimations, have been kind of a golden age in Washington. I mean, the city has grown, the city has become wealthier, the city's the most uh, stats about things like crime and violence and poverty and stuff have, have, have gone in the right direction most. But one of the weird things about this as a golden age is like the architecture for the most part is like pretty unmemorable. There's some exceptions like the, the libraries that you I know you've written about. What what can we do? Like what could the government do in letting this out to kind of promote something that would be beautiful to insist that whoever develops the space make a 
beautiful, memorable, not just another glassy condo building with stores on the ground floor kind of building. That's a great point. You know, a, a big reason why a lot of the buildings in D.C. are unmemorable is because in a way they're supposed to be right. You know, we have a term called like soldier buildings, like most most buildings in a city bleed into the background and their job is to be good, like bit players in the show. Right. This is a big, prominent intersection. And in the 80s, they put a big, prominent building there to uh, you know, as an icon for that spot. Right. And so the question is now, like, can the city ask for a high quality design that is distinctive, that is memorable, that, you know, fits whatever the program that is proposed for that spot, but is an icon befitting both this location as a prominent intersection, but also its historic character is like the heart of, of DC's Black Broadway and also the spot of a, you know, a tremendous uh, cataclysmic hurt that happened in 1968 that should, I think, be a part of the memory here, too. Yep, I think that's exactly right, Tim. Now let's move over to Julia's Sports Corner. Speaking of corners. Speaking of corners. So the Washington Spirit, who are the National Women's Soccer League team out of Washington, D.C., they have signed a multi-year deal to play all of their home games at Audi Field. Uh, Currently, Audi Field is the home pitch for D.C. United, the men's soccer team out of D.C. And I cannot stress enough to all of you, like, how big of a deal this is. Um, The Spirit used to play at the Maryland Soccerplex in Boyd's, Maryland. And if you haven't heard of that, it's far. Like, you have to get in a car and drive there. It's not accessible via Metro. They've had a couple of games sprinkled in when they were at the Soccerplex that they played at Audi Field. I was at one of those games. And people kind of realized, like, oh, my God, like, this is a really fun experience. We should go to more of these games. And so after that, the team struck a deal with DC United, who has the rights to Audi Field to play some home games at Audi Field for the last couple of years and at Segra Field, which is where Loudoun United, the like feeder underling team to DC United play. And the Segra Field games were like not well attended. It only fits about like 5,000 people. And it's also out in Loudoun County. Like it is far. Like again, not metro accessible. Not really convenient for anybody, but the Audi Field games saw a ton of increase in attendance. Like, I think I saw numbers that when the team played at Audi Field, attendance was in like the 8,000s. That's one of the highest in the NWSL. That's a big deal. According to Stephen Goff, who writes about soccer for the Washington Post, part of this deal includes that all of the regular season matches are going to be held at Audi Field. There's potential for playoff games and early season Challenge Cup stuff. So the NWSL has this challenge cup where basically all the teams play in like a knockout bracket style series, which is kind of cool. So Audi Field hosting, that would be pretty sick. And basically there's a minimum of 14 home dates. That is really important, I think, because it's proven also that women's soccer does really well in the district. Audi Field hosted the National Women's Soccer League's championship this last year, which the Portland Thorns won, and that was sold out. So I think it does say like a lot about the growth of women's soccer as a thing to go to in the in the DC area. What's fanhood like? I mean, it was one of the cool things about soccer, and and I I know nothing about <laughs> it on the field, but I think like fan culture is really cool, and I'm I'm curious as to what the fan culture of Washington's team is. I think the fan culture of Washington's team is like very loud and very proud. Like this is a team that embraces everyone from all walks of life. Doesn't matter your skin color, your sexuality, your gender orientation. It is like part of it is to be like an inclusive area and an inclusive sport. The other thing about it is that like similar to how Premier League teams have chants that go 
all throughout the game, people standing and banging on drums. The spirit have that too. It's a little smaller in scale, and it has been because of the limitations of what the stadiums have offered. But now, like, I can definitely imagine, you know, the spirit squadron coming out and going absolutely nuts with drums and trumpets and embracing people who want to be part of that, who want to be kind of loud and rowdy and proud about their team. Can, can you do the chant for us? Uh, <laughs> you don't have to. I'm kidding. There's a there's a variety of them. Like obviously, there's like chants for the goaltender, uh, whose last name is Kingsbury. So like, if she makes a big save, you just scream Kingsbury's name. Another one, and this is one is used like for, I think a lot of the teams in the area is like, vamos, vamos, spirit, esta noche tenemos que ganar, which is like, Washington Spirit tonight, let's win, right? So I think it's you know. Again, embracing what DC has to offer in terms of the people who watch the game. Are there a lot of people in the crowd whose first language is Spanish? I don't know, actually. I think part of that is like some of the players are Spanish or come from Latin America or South America. Um, But I imagine that part of it is just like part of the soccer culture is having like different languages or chants from different languages woven into the fabric of the, the fandom. Well, that's all the time we got. Dan Reed, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And Julia, always a pleasure to have you on the pod. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend who is watching the World Cup. Spirit is a good team. They should check them out. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Well, that's all the time we got. <laughs> Dan Reed, thanks. Well, sorry. That well was like old prospectory well. That's, that's what I was going for. <laughs> okay.